So it is our ninth birthday, and uh, that's always a good time to reflect. And as I was thinking about what I wanted to reflect on, I decided you all probably needed an update on how Charlotte, my daughter, is doing with Jesus, all right? Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, let me just kind of catch you up real quick. Here's a, here's a season recap. Um, my daughter wanted to kill Jesus back on Easter, okay? Now, my daughter's five, so nothing's going to happen. But let me just, the quick of it is this. Like, it started about a year ago in the fall when she was imagining a witch killing Jesus. That didn't go well for us. Um, and I had to try to help just nudge her away from that. And then it led to heading up to Easter that she was having a bad dream. And the bad dream was a, uh, a tall white man with a big gray beard and a sword. And I was like, well, sweetheart, I think that's Gandalf. She's never, she's never read, Lord, Lord, read Lord of the Rings or watched the movies, okay? But I'm like, I think that's Gandalf. She goes, no, that's Jesus. And I said, okay, well, Jesus loves you. And she said, no, he wants to hurt me. And I said, baby, no, he doesn't want to. He loves you so much. She goes, tonight in my dreams, I'm going to kill him. All right? So there's the recap. There's the Easter message. But I felt like that's like a cliffhanger. You know what I mean? Like at the end of a season, like five-year-old little girl wants to kill Jesus. And so um, all that said, recently I was I just asked her, she came in talking about a, a Jesus cartoon she was watching, but she didn't finish the cartoon. Uh, she just got to the cross on the cartoon of Jesus. I didn't show her this cartoon. It happened somewhere in Mississippi for people. That's all I know, okay? But like, I didn't show it to her. All that said, I recorded it, and I thought you all maybe should have like access to this updated interview with my daughter around Jesus. So here we go. I'm trying. That's all I can tell you. I'm doing the best I can with what I have to work with in life, okay? And you're like, but you're a pastor, you've studied theology, you have like degrees, things like that. I know, we're all struggling here, and like we're working on English and theology and God and all those things. But here's, here's what, I, there's another part to this. I, I was putting her to bed the other night, and just, she said to me, she goes, she goes, Daddy, I love Jesus. And I said, oh, well, that's great, like, she goes, yeah, he's just, I like, I wish I could spend time with, she's saying this, she goes, I wish I could spend time with him. Like, I wish he was here with me right now. And, like, I walked out of the room, and I was like, oh, man, like, how sweet is that? Like, I miss that. Like, that's what I thought. I miss that. I miss getting to go from being scared of somebody or not wanting to be around them, to the innocence of then going, oh, and I really miss that person. Like, it seemed like a real relationship. If you're married, you know what I mean. Like, somehow when you're married, you can get into these big fights where you're done, and then you're like, oh, I really miss that person, like, a few hours later. Like, I never want to do life without him again. And you're like, am I crazy? And you're going, no, you're not crazy. That's relationships. It's real. It's tangible. It's very human. As I was thinking about this morning and what I wanted us to think about together, it was, if you're here, there was a yes that you had at one point in time in your life. Nobody just stumbles into church, especially in Midtown, saying like, I'm looking for a hype time with God, right? And like, that no matter what's happened in my life, it's all good and I'm just kind of moving forward. No, like, you're... Or nobody's here going, I want nothing to do with God, and I hope God never appears in my life. Like, you're somewhere between those two places. Like, you're here because the hype 
like fell off, or you're here because maybe somehow, some way, that connection you've been missing with God can be rekindled. And for a lot of us, you may have been showing up week after week thinking maybe this is the week I'm struck with like lightning from on high, that I'm going to hear the right words and say the right things, and all those things that I had as a child are going to be brought back into my life. Can I relate to that? Can I relate to having this experience with God, saying yes to God, but then as time goes on, you feel like that that connection gets less and less. And you start thinking maybe you're the person who's wrong. You start thinking that if I just did things differently, things could change. And so therefore, we have a yes, but it usually ends with a period. But this morning, I want us to think about that maybe there's a yes with a comma, and it's yes and. Maybe there was a yes in your life with God. Maybe there was a yes to your walk with Christ, but you felt like there was a period. But I want us to see here there's more. There's an and there. There's more for us to engage with. There's more for us to have rekindled in our lives. There's actually a childlikeness I think that we can interact with again. But it takes a lot of work, and we need to kind of look at what it's going to take for us then. So what I want to do is just kind of walk through Psalm 113 and see what we get to. So let's look at the first five verses. It starts with saying, praise the Lord, praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh, you his servants. Praise the name of Yahweh. The name of Yahweh to be praised both now and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of Yahweh is to be praised. Yahweh is exalted over all the nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, Yahweh our God, the one who sits enthroned on high. If you had this connection with God at one point in your life, really strong, vibrant one, with a lot of innocence to it, what probably worked for you, I know it did for me, was trying to engage the scriptures as much as possible, right? Maybe engaging youth group, maybe engaging worship services. It's trying to engage these words in truths that are truth about God as much as possible. And if I just put that in me enough times, maybe something will latch on and connect. And here we see here with the psalmist, he's, he's talking about praising God. Love from the rising of the sun till the, till the point it sets. Like God is worthy of our praise. And so we try these things. I know growing up, I would try this so much. I'm like, all right, I'm going to conjure myself up. I might even, I mean, I grew up uber charismatic, right? Like some of you can relate to this, but like uber charismatic. And so I'm going to like name it, claim it, speak into existence. I'm showing up to church, hype, high five, and this is going to work. And I might can get enough to last me until like Monday afternoon. And if I try really hard, Tuesday morning. But at some point in time, I feel really depleted. And so then I try to go back and like bring it back up again. Keep praising the Lord. Keep praising the Lord. That's what I need to do is keep praising the Lord. Can any of you relate to that? Can you relate to in your life trying to get yourself up for God? That's a lot of work. And it's important. It's very important that we do those kinds of things. But honestly, there's an element missing because it's saying king, Yahweh the king, Yahweh the Lord. Within the ancient Near East, this powerful being, the Lord, would have been a king. God is king. And 
every good king was thought of as a father. Matter of fact, people would call their king father. That was a very endearing term to call a king, to call a lord over all things. Because the idea is, is that the father would take care of us, the children. That if we're in this king's kingdom, this king is meant to be a really good father who looks after all of his children, makes sure that he sees them and their needs and meets them where they are. But we live in a world where there's a lot of bad representations of fathers, of mothers, of kings, of queens, of people in power. People who maybe were supposed to take care of us. People who were maybe meant to be there for us when the times were hard. And so we end up being delusional at times. Like, just real honest here. I've had these moments in my life where I'm trying to convince myself of God's love for me, but nothing in me believes in God's love. Because I had these experiences that seemed to outweigh the moments where I did feel God's love. Like I have all these prayers I prayed where God, please, I'm begging you, just come meet me here in this moment. Help me in this thing. And it didn't happen. And I felt very, very, very unseen. Or even if you have experiences with parents in your life. I know some of your stories. And listen, parents are imperfect. There's no such thing as a perfect parent. We're all, even in our own parenting, nobody gets to say that I'll do it better than my parents and you nail it. No, like your kids will end up in therapy one day. That's how it works, right? And it goes on and on. What we're all hoping to do is learn from some of the things that happened, not repeat those, and then when we do things that we didn't mean to do, we own those things when our kids come and talk to us. That's how it works. And yet, what can happen is, I know at least for me, is that I keep trying to lift up this God, and yet I feel like this God is so distant. Like, I'm not sure, like, does God really love me? Does God really see me? Does God really want to be with me? Let's look on here to verse 6, though. Who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth. So you have this person who's really, really powerful, that has all the power. Like, who can, a king could forgive the debts of any person in their kingdom, just like a father can with their child. A king can make sure that everything works out for the people in their kingdom, just like a good parent can for their kids when they're in their home. Like if the kids will let them, the parent can make sure that they have a good night's sleep and they have the right healthy food and they have a good start to their day the next day, all those kinds of things. Now, kids don't want that because they're kids, right? But us as parents, we're trying our best in those things. And yet, if the story just ended with a powerful king who had all power but never interacted with his people, we'd end up feeling very lonely. But what we have here in verse 6 is it says, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth. I love in the ESV, it says, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. You ever been around a person who just has it all together? It's all working for them right? Like they're getting all the followers on social media. They're, they're like nailing it with their eating plan. They like haven't lost one follicle of hair. Like everything's just working for them, right? They don't seem to have a care or worry in the world. 
Uh, those may just be my problems. But like, you, you look around, you're like, man, they have no problems. Or you look at someone who is further along than you in life that has seemed to nail it with whatever life has thrown their way, and they have all this kind of power. And they had the ability to help someone else out if they wanted to, but they don't. They had the ability to help provide a path for the one they've walked on and say, hey, here's a path you could walk here. Like when, when we see people with power who don't wield power in good, healthy ways, it can make us delusional. It can create a loneliness in us, a gap in us that we feel like can't be closed. And of course, we're going to put that on God because here's the most powerful being in the world, the one we're here this morning to connect with, but does God see me in my life? Is God with me through the things I'm walking through? Why is it I'm praying this prayer for the hundredth time and there's no connection? Do I need to buy the next book out there? The next book that's going to tell me how to conjure up God's presence, how to name it, claim it, how to make it all work for me the way that God's meant, God's plan by Drake? Like, what's it going to be? Like, how do we get there? We get delusional in those places. But here was interesting the psalmist is saying, this king who's all-powerful looks far down, looks far down on his kingdom, looks all the way down on his children as a father would, and then stoops down, comes down to be with them. In the Hebrew, um, the, the word is ra'i. And it means to, to see, but it also means to gaze and behold. Now, let's just have an honest moment here. When's the last time that you actually believed God was gazing and beholding you? Just think about that for a minute. When's the last time that you felt God just put his gaze on you and didn't leave? That's awkward. You ever had somebody just kind of gaze at you and not stop? You're like, you need to move on, bud. <laughs> you know, like this needs to stop right now. We don't know what to do when we are beholden to another person. Because usually when that happens, there's some kind of um, angle or evil intent. We're so used to being used in life. The first time that we actually see this word appear um, in a very significant way would be Genesis 16, a woman named Hagar, who was a servant to these two people, Abraham and Sarah, and they weren't treating her the right way. Matter of fact, it says that she was treated harshly. She was meant to be beholden in a good way by these people, but she wasn't. She was a slave. She ran away into the desert, and this angel of the Lord comes and meets her and sees her. The very first thing we see God doing is seeing a person in their misery. And she calls God's name el Roe, the God who sees. We long to be seen. It's our deepest need, and yet we're so scared by it. We're so scared for God to actually see us, because if God does see us, God will judge us. But look what happens when God sees his people, verse 7 through 9. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and the princes of his people. 
He settles the childless woman in her home as a happy mother of children. Praise the Lord. Here's what's interesting to me. Um, See, this God who sees, who stoops down, he changes people's bad situations. This God does something about it. This God comes to the poor person, like who literally is a person of poverty, and then like restores them. This is a God who sees the person mourning in an ash heap, in sackcloth and ashes, like you would burn ashes, like you would, you would make these ashes and sit in them when bad things happen. When you, have, when you have an ash heap, you have a lot of bad things that have happened. So here's a person mourning. They are convulsing over their lives of sadness. And here's a God, a father, who comes right down and lifts them up out of those ashes. And then we have one that really can touch home to us. This God comes and meets the woman in shame. It's a very shameful thing for a woman in the ancient Near East to not be able to have children because that was her 401k. Like, it was a man's world, and if you wanted to be protected and have a future, you needed men around you. You couldn't be self-sufficient like you can today. And so, therefore, children were the 401k. They were the investment. And if you can't have children, that means you have no future. It means you have no protection. It means you have no one looking out for you. And here is this woman who is barren, has no one there for her, lives in her shame, and God, it says, comes and makes a home for her, gives her a home. Like she is without a place and a space to belong, and even in that home has children, whether of her own, whether through adoption. You see, God comes in the very practical places of life, the very neediness of life, and comes and brings things, good things, the things that are needed for people who are dealing with the worst situations. And yet, we can look at this and our eyes kind of just gloss over. Because how many times have we heard this? And how many times have we tried to conjure ourselves up to believe these things? And can I do it one more time? And that's why I'll just stick with a yes with a period instead of a yes with an and, because it's safer. It's safer to not put myself out there again for God to not meet me in my need and in my despair. And I totally get that. And yet, if we stay there, we never get to the part where we can experience something deeper and fuller. I've been meditating on, and when I say meditate, I don't mean like lotus position which is fine with me, but my point is I've been thinking on for a long time, for over a year now, one particular passage of Scripture. I've found that I can't consume too much at one time because just I won't think about it. But there's this passage from Matthew chapter 7 that's really interesting to me. I want to read it to you here from the message. If your child asks for bread, do you trick him with sawdust? If he asks for fish, do you scare him with a live snake on his plate? As bad as you are, you wouldn't think of such a thing. You're at least decent to your own children. So don't you think the God who conceived you in love will be even better? You know, what's interesting about this passage is it doesn't start with God 
to get to us. It doesn't say like, here is who God is, and therefore believe these things, and then you will see that God meets you in life. What's interesting is it starts with your best day as a parent and says, listen, if your child asks for bread, are you going to give them like salt? Like who gives, anyway, I don't understand. Who gives sawdust? That must be a thing. But like if God asks for, if you ask, your, your child asks for bread, right, you aren't giving them like not bread. Like you're going to give them the thing that has the nutrients in it they need. You want to take care of them. Like if your child asks for these things, you're going to do your best to give it to them. If they ask for a fish, you're not going to give them a snake and go, hey, enjoy that live snake. But how many times have we felt like we've asked for bread and we got sawdust? And how many times do we, when we ask for a fish, we feel like we got a live snake? I know we don't want to admit it, but it's called our life, all of our lives. You keep banking on the right thing to happen at the right moment, and it doesn't seem to happen. And now you got to live with all this tension. Like we pray for safety and safety and safety for Suzanne during this pregnancy. And Suzanne got into an accident last week. A guy clipped her, hit her. Her and the baby are fine. But like airbags went off, car got totaled. And I really didn't handle myself well as this good Christian pastor, right? Like saw the guy there. I let him know a few things about him and life. Um, and then I rushed myself to the emergency room. Like that's how it went down on, on Tuesday. And you're thinking to yourself, like, God, I thought we didn't pray for this to happen. Why is this happening here? You're supposed to keep this from happening. Because what if I lose my baby? Then we got more problems, God. That's going through my head, right? As I'm zooming down 385, trying to get to the hospital. Like, we ask for bread, we get sawdust. We ask for a fish, we get a snake. And then you go, like, I guess this is how life works. No, it's saying even a good, even a decent, like a half-decent parent wouldn't do that. And what he's saying is this. If you wouldn't do that, then God wouldn't do that. Would you give that to your children? To the person you love the most? No. So why do we put that on God? I think it's because of our experiences in life. Like, you're going to need a person very loving in your life to communicate God's love to you. Let me back up and show it to you this way. When you think about the psalm passage, did you know that God didn't literally like stoop down and like get a poor person settled where they're not poor anymore? Like he literally didn't do that. You know who did that? Humans. People. People literally were the ones that went and helped the poor person no longer have to live in their poverty. Humans literally went to the person in their ash heap and helped lift them up and carry them. Humans literally went to the woman who was barren and helped give her a home. It was humans. It was people. It was people loving other people. This is my point. We are in need of loving people in our lives if we're ever going to have a chance at rekindling who God is in our lives. I'll read what is in your bulletin, what what Richard Rohr had to say about that. Those who pray learn to favor and prefer God's judgment over that of human beings. God always outdoes us in generosity and receptivity. God is always more loving than the person who has loved you the most. 
all you can bring is today's latest product, whatever it is, for a new dose of love. It will always be immature on some level. It will always be inadequate, but that is not the point. It is not the perfection of the gift, but the willingness to lovingly offer the gift that pleases all parents, and surely then the super parent that some of us call God. Let's put this line up here just to think about. God is always more loving than the person who has loved you the most. I want you to, for a second, picture in your mind who is the most loving person you know and how have they loved you. What have they done for you? How have they treated you? How have they spoken kindly to you? How have they lifted you up out of hard circumstances? Okay, now if you got that person, God is infinitely more loving than that person. We do not base God off the worst experiences in our lives. We have to base God based off the best experiences in our life. The people who are willing to be with us in the hard times, those people are the ones who show God's love the most, that you can multiply times infinity of what God is really like. See, the way that you will be able to reconnect with God and me as well won't be through me conjuring up and saying, God surely is these things. It's going to take me reflecting on how people have loved me and been there for me. And, and trust me, negativity is always easier to attach to your brain than positivity. You will always go to the people who have harmed you more than the people who have helped you. We will always want to go to the people who have abandoned us instead of the people who were with us. And then we will always want to put that on God. But friends, that is such a swamp. That is such a place of death to live in. And this is why I think us and our existence as a church is really vital. Because if we do nothing else as a church, then provide incredibly loving, non-codependent, we're there for you, we're going to be with you kinds of love. If we can provide that, that's going to give people the best chance at reconnecting with God. It will not be through our hype worship. It will not be through our amazing sermons. It will not be through all the liturgy we do. It will simply be because you were willing to be that loving to a person when others weren't. Which is why I don't credit Charlotte's coming around to no longer wanting to kill. We got to work on that still because she thinks Jesus is still dead, but it's progress, right? But it's like, I was thinking on that, like what has got her to this place where she no longer wants to kill Jesus, but now she likes Jesus and loves Jesus. I'm like, what well, was it? Because I like, was doing like catechesis with her every night. Okay, Charlotte, who is God? No, incorrect, try again, right? Like, no. I was like, where did it happen? Oh, it happened in CCK. Like, I was thinking about that. Like, I was thinking about all the people in this room, so many of you, I see you, that are up there loving on her, loving on other children, taking time with them, seeing them. I was just up there and seeing Andrew Best playing worship. I know Matt Hernandez and others as well. Like, be up there. Like, hey, y'all, like, God loves you. Let's connect here. Like, he loves you. Well, listen, it's not the words they're saying. It's the person who's saying the words that that child's being convinced by that maybe God loves them. 
it won't be simply the words here. It will be the connection that we can have that will be convincing of God's love for you. Which is why if we do nothing else other than simply create touch points of love for people who come in this room, we have exceeded everything that we were meant to be as a church. We are the best chance others have at bumping into God. The question will be, will we provide a touch point of love, a touch point of reinforcing the narratives of the world around them? Will we be that kind to them, that accepting, that understanding of them, like a parent would with their child? And listen, if you're that lonely, here's what I'd say to you. You need better touch points of love. I want you to consider the people you have in your lives that keep telling you they represent God. They know not say it that way. I represent God. But if they're actually not that loving, I want you to know something. That's not the representation of God. And you're going to have to let yourself know that. This person here is not God. This person and how they're treating me is not God. God is a person who is loving, a person who sees me, who stoops down to me in my poverty, in my distress, in my sadness, in my shame, and meets me there. And the people who want to do that with me, those are the people who times infinity represent God. If we could make it another year as a church simply doing that, then it's been a year well lived. Let's pray. Father, it's a simple message. doesn't take that much uh, brain power. And yet, it can be really profound for us. Like, the thing we're all longing for is to actually believe Psalm 113. There's a person that powerful out there who will stoop down and look upon us and meet us in our ashes, in our shame, in our poverty, and will restore us. And that we don't have to pray lonely prayers. And yet, if we stay in isolation, we'll probably never get to experience the literal people that you're wanting to meet us in those places. It's going to take people restoring us to a relationship with you again. It's not going to take more books, more thoughts that are well laid out. It's going to take people who want to love us. And so, God, I pray for the two things this morning as we come to the table. One, for those people in this room that are convinced that you no longer love them or see them. I pray that you would give them people who are very, very loving to them. They're just very, very loving. They're very kind. They ask questions. They're more intent on being interested than simply being interesting. And also, though, Lord, pray for those in this room who think that um, their roles maybe in volunteering here and handing people a bulletin and asking how they're doing and remembering their name, maybe loving on kiddos, maybe even going out and serving those in need in our city, that they can kind of just chalk that up as another thing. But it's literally those things that become the best chance for people to have a better experience of who you are, that they can multiply times infinity with themselves of going, God, you do love me. 
and you do see me because we get to be the carriers of your love. And so I pray this morning as we come to you and your table, we'll be reminded of all these things. In your name we pray, amen.